Hey there, thanks for tuning in to St. John's Asheville Sermon Podcast. We're a church in Sydney's inner west, following Jesus and helping people find grace, learn hope, and be light. If you'd like to visit us or find out more, go to cciw.church. One of the most um, attractive and inviting consequences of the victory of God in the cross of Christ is the formation of a community of grace. Human existence has always been communal from the first creation narrative. We learn that it is not good to be alone and God's first gift to humanity is one another. And at the same time, one of the most devastating and destructive consequences of sin is the breakdown of community. Again, we see it in the first creation narrative as the man and the woman turn on one another. They engage in all the characteristic community-crushing moves. They blame shift, they retreat in shame, they gang up against a perceived enemy in this case, God, and community has been complex ever since. The challenge for community, of course, is how to live with difference. And there are at least two alternatives to real, substantive, grace-based community. The first is pseudo-community, surface community, where we pretend about the differences. We make sure that the differences... Uh, that we have don't function and that we don't talk about them. And if they do pop their heads up, especially in the form of conflict, then what we do is quietly nurse grudges and emotionally withdraw from one another, backing away with a thin, disingenuous smile on your face. You may have noticed that churches are especially good at this pseudo-community. We come to church each Sunday, to our community groups each week, with our game face on and never quite get around to knowing and being known, because that would all be just a bit too terrifying. That's pseudo-community. On the other hand, there's a second alternative to the community of grace, and that's what I would call moralistic community. Uh, There's something very important about the value of equality. Uh, It functions enormously powerfully as a kind of a, a premise, an axiom in our society. If something promotes equality, it's good. If it, if it decreases equality, it's bad. But at the same time, there's a real danger in the virtue of quality. People are just different. They're different in weight and height and age and intelligence and strength and character and resilience. And the virtue of equality can descend into the vice of equalitarianism, where all differences are determined to be bad and therefore to be erased. And the way that you erase difference is by demanding that people be the same as you, have the same values, do the same things, express the same opinions, and if they don't, well, then they're not welcome here. And, of course, that's not real community either. That's just a tribe. Grace-based community amongst the believers in Jesus Christ in Rome was under severe pressure, and that worried the Apostle Paul enormously. As uh, we'll see next week, there was a fairly pragmatic reason for that. His mission from the Lord to be the Apostle to the Gentiles required a further, and I think what he considered to be his final mission trip, uh, to what was then the ends of the earth, to go all the way from the Middle East to bring the Gospel to Spain. And he needed Rome to be the staging post for that, to be like his Gospel partner sending Church, his mission base, his missionary support headquarters for that trip. 
And they're hardly likely to do that if they are in chaos themselves. So there's a, there's a pragmatic reason why the, the sort of the breakdown of community in Rome was worrying to Paul, but, but there's something much more important than that. Because deep in the heart of God's purposes for the world is the restoration of community. And so for Paul, bringing healing to the saints in Rome or to any church is not a sideline. It's not the, it's not the salt and pepper of the gospel banquet. It's the meat and potatoes. It's fundamental to the gospel itself. And all of that comes to a head in Romans chapters 14 and 15. As we've seen over the last couple of weeks, the issue is heated. Um, Gentile Christians whose educated and liberated consciences mean that they feel at liberty to roam around the, the, the sort of full boundaries, the full extent of their freedom, not bound by the old covenant law. They're breaching the norms of grace-based community by insisting that their Jewish Christian sisters and brothers do likewise. They've moved into equalitarianism. They've moved into moralism. You must be like us. That's always how moralistic community works. You belong here if you're the same as us. And, and Paul, you may remember from last week, is outraged. Don't you understand that you are causing those for whom Christ died to violate their consciences? And in other words, to sin? For the sake of food and drink, you're destroying the work of God? Are you serious? And now in chapter 15, he reaches the end point of his argument. And he lays the foundation for a restored community of grace in Rome. And he makes, well, what he says, we're going to summarize under three points. Uh, the what, the how, and the why. The what of grace-based community, the how of grace-based community, and the why of grace-based community. So first, in the what. The what of grace-based community. What does it look like to have a community of grace? Chapter 15, verse 1. We are strong or to put up with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us must please our neighbour for the good purpose of building up the neighbour. Now, one of the very interesting things that Paul does throughout this whole section of chapters 14 to 15, is to make it clear that sometimes there are more important things than being right. I mean, it's really fun to be right, isn't it? You know, great fun. Not that important sometimes. Paul is quite clear where he stands on the issue. He says, we who are strong. He agrees 100% with the theology of the strong. It's just that on some issues, there is more to community than theology. On some issues, there is more to community than theology. Now, it's really important not to mishear this. On the one hand, when what is at stake is the gospel, as in his letter to the Galatians, or the behaviour that flows necessarily from the gospel, as in his first letter to the Corinthians, then theology is decisive for community. Paul is unspeakably fierce in Galatians. If someone preaches another gospel, then let them be anathema, which is one of those decisions that Bible translators make to say, we can't say what it really means, so we're not going to translate it and leave it in Aramaic so that no one will really understand it. But you know what anathema means? Go to hell. Biblical phrase, use it whenever you... No, no, don't do that. If someone preaches another gospel, then literally let them go to hell. 
And similarly, in a case of egregious sexual immorality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians, I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother or sister who's sexually immoral or greedy or is an idolater or reviler or drunkard or robber. Do not even eat with such a one, he says. Someone unrepentant in these sins? Don't have anything to do with them. So Paul is not some mealy-mouthed relativist, some feeble-minded proponent of surface community who says the only thing that matters is that we all get along with each other. No way. On the other hand, it's just not the case that the gospel and the behaviour that flows necessarily from the gospel is always at stake. Or perhaps another way to put that is to say that one of the behaviours that necessarily flows from the gospel is to make every effort to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. As the Apostle puts it in Ephesians chapter 4. Every effort. Every effort. And that's exactly Paul's point here. You see how he puts it? Put up with the failings of the weak. Uh, actually, that's, a, a, again, a pretty lousy translation, to be honest. What it, what it says literally is, bear with the weaknesses of the powerless. Um, hold up the weaknesses of the marginalised. Um, Paul is, I think, characteristically brilliant here. He's saying that the strong are supposed to use their strength. They're not, they're not supposed to pretend about it or suppress it or deny it or just hide it under a bushel or something like that. The strong are required to use their strength to engage it with a purpose, um, and, and the image here is of carrying a load, if you like. That's what that is, you know, to, to bear something means to, to put it on your shoulders, to carry a load. And the load is the weaknesses of those who don't have as much power as they do, those whose consciences are more prescribed than theirs are. What's, what's being called for here by Paul on the, on the, uh, on the strong is not an act of indifference, it's not a shrug of the shoulders, but active engagement to get their strength into the game, not, not, but not for their sake. As the Apostle says, not to please ourselves. Rather, he goes on, each of us must please our neighbour for the good purpose of building up the neighbour. Do, do you see the brilliance of this move? Um, mostly what we do with strong people is we say, don't be strong. Uh, wealthy people, we say, don't be wealthy. Influential people, we say, don't be influential. We try and take them down. And, and Paul knows that's nonsense. That's a ridiculous way to, to respond to people. He says, don't hide your strength. Don't pretend that you don't have it. I'm not going to try and shame you for having it. Use it. Deploy it. Absolutely be what you are in all your strength, just do it for others, not yourself. Or, or as he puts it again in verse 7, welcome one another. Uh, welcome doesn't mean smile thinly at others. It doesn't mean exchange uh, superficial pleasantries. It means allow the other person in, into your presence, most immediately into your life, into your home, into your concern and care. See, here is the content of a community of grace. Here's what a community of grace is. It means that we don't have criteria beyond the gospel 
for how we welcome and include and encourage and build up one another. That's what it means to be a community of grace, to not have criteria, boxes that people have to tick, hurdles that people have to jump over. We see and we recognise all the differences that there are between us. All the ways in which I might have got things right and you've got them wrong or you've got them right and I've got them wrong and the whole point of that strength is that I use it for you and you use it for me. Not to puff myself up, but for the good purpose of building others up. It's, a, it's one of the great images of the New Testament to describe uh, our interaction with each other, that of building each other up. It's like, it's like we're all um, under construction, all, all, all you know, dwellings or buildings or, or, or great big towers or whatever. I'm more sort of a flat, large structure. Um, I think of myself as a renovator's delight, actually. Um, there's an enormous amount of hard work that needs to go into every one of us to build us up to be all that God has created and redeemed us to be. See, and what the Apostle's saying is, is that your job, with all of the strengths that you have, that means all of the differences that you have, your job is to join God in that construction project that he's doing on me. And that's whether you are like me, that's whether you even like me. Those things are not terribly important considerations because we are to be a community of grace. Because notice the way that Paul grounds this instruction. We're not to please ourselves because Christ did not please himself. We're to welcome one another just as Christ welcomes us. Paul is almost incapable of talking about the church without referring to Christ, which makes sense because guess what? The church is what? The body of Christ. And Christ is, guess what? The head of the church. He's our control center. But notice that what Paul says here is not only that Christ is an example for us, that's true. He didn't please himself. He welcomed himself. So we should follow in his example. That's true. But it's not the deepest truth. Rather, even more than the fact that Christ is our example, he is our substitute. It's because Christ didn't please himself, in fact, because he was the one who substituted himself so that the insults of those who insult you, boom, he comes in, he steps in, they fall on him. He takes your place, you see. He was forsaken by God so that we can be welcomed by God. He takes your place. And it's because he's even more deeply than our example, our substitute, that we actually have the spiritual power to be those who build up and welcome others. Which leads to the second point, how? How are we to be a community of grace? It's interesting that one of the themes that recurs throughout this whole passage is hope. I don't know if you noticed it on the way through. Uh, four times... Uh, in the passage, the apostle speaks of hope. You see it in verse 4, after having quoted Psalm 69 about the insults falling on Christ, Paul adds a footnote about the permanent use of what uh, we would call the Old Testament, which is written for our instruction, um, which is not instruction in the sense of understanding some ideas, rather it's instruction about how to live, that by the steadfastness and encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. 
turns out that Paul regards having hope as crucial if believers are going to be able to please not themselves but their neighbour for the good purpose of building up their neighbour. Or again, quoting Isaiah 11, Paul said that it is uh, the root of Jesse, which is a way of referring to great King David and his even greater son, that the Gentiles will hope. Which then leads to Paul's wonderful prayer that the believers in Rome will be filled with all joy and peace in believing so that they can abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. In fact, it turns out that even one of God's names is the God of hope. Why is hope so important? Why will it make such a difference in your life if you're a person of biblical gospel hope? How will it fuel grace-based community? Hope takes you out of the immediate. What hope does is to give you a wider frame of reference, a a confidence that regardless of what is happening right now in front of you, this difficult person, that horrible situation, those awkward groups of people, that's not how it's always going to be. That's not the destiny for any of us. And that reframing is crucial fuel for a community of grace. Because when you have hope, you're able to exercise patience, delayed gratification, whereas ungrace is all about demandingness. There is nothing that destroys a community of grace more than demandingness. There is nothing that interferes with the capacity to build up others or that encourages a spirit of always pleasing yourself than demandingness. There's nothing more corrosive of welcoming others just as Christ has welcomed you as that your heart is chock full of demandingness. You must. You need to. I'm not going to accept you unless. That's demandingness. It kills community. And the point is, hope dissolves demandingness. The more hope-filled a person you are, the less demanding a person you'll be. When you're hopeful, when you know that the present is not the future and that the future is not a function of your ability to bend the world and other people to your preferences but is in the hands of a good and gracious God, then the spirit of demandingness is just gradually dissolved within you. You can cope more with things not being the way that you want. You can cope more with people not being the way that you want. And so you will more and more have it in you to serve them rather than serve yourself by demanding that they conform to your preferences. You'll welcome them rather than reject them. And it actually works the other way around as well. The more demanding a person you are, the more that you have high expectations of others 
and you're pretty judgmental about others fulfilling your expectations and you've got a group of people that you know are the good people and then there's all the bad people out there. The more demanding a person you are, the more you're constantly looking out for how other people don't live up to your expectations, the more frequently you find yourself disappointed by other people and especially people in the church because they don't get with your program, whatever that might be. Well, one of the fundamental things that's happening is that the hope of the gospel is not really operating in your heart. The hope of the gospel does not actually fill your horizon. Your head is down. Your gaze is lowered. And so, of course, people get in your way. And you just run right over them. But God is a God of hope. It's one of his names. And so his people will also be a people of hope. Not, not because they have power to make things the way they want them, right? I'm full of hope because I can really get my way. No. But because God has the power. He has the power to make all things new, even that irritating neighbour. And perhaps even more astonishingly, even me and you. Which leads to the third point, the why of a community of grace. I said that right at the heart of God's purposes for the world um, is the restoration of community. Um, And you see that here. Paul prays that they may live in harmony with one another in accordance with Christ Jesus, but that harmony is not an end in itself. We're not into community for community's sake. Notice the purpose, verse 6, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's a a telos, a goal, an end point to community. It's so that with one voice, we can glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To God belongs the glory, obviously. He is the creator, he is the sustainer, he is the redeemer and perfecter of all things. But that glory is tarnished when God's people are singing out of harmony when there are miserable and discordant notes, when there are clashes and conflicts. And so the vision of the gospel includes the great choir of God's people united in voice, with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now what I I love about the image of um, a choir is that it's both uh, beautiful and powerful. Because one of the things about the harmony of a choir is that difference is not just tolerated, it's needed. The bass and the tenor and the alto and the soprano each bring very different gifts and capacities. Maybe even temperaments to the table. Get a bunch of bass players or bass singers at a table. You talk to them, They sound very different. But when they get their harmony on, when they don't please themselves but please their neighbour, when they welcome one another just as Christ has welcomed them, then it is precisely those differences that make the choir excellent. You you see how it works? All basses, even all sopranos, it's it's just not as rich, it's just not as full, it's just not as excellent. The Apostle is saying we need each other 
precisely in our difference to fully be the people of God. It's always been God's purpose right from the very beginning. And that purpose has now been brought to fulfilment in Jesus Christ who became, the apostle says, a servant on behalf of the truth of God, that is, in faithfulness uh, to that truth by God, both at his promises to the fathers of faith, Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, that through them God would fill the earth, that their descendants would be as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore would be fulfilled, and also that the Gentiles would praise and glorify God for his mercy, just as the Psalms and Deuteronomy and Isaiah said, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, both Jews plus Gentiles. Difference, massive difference in beautiful harmony with one voice glorifying the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's for us too. That's God's purpose for us. Our problems are not those of the Roman believers. Issues of food and drink and Sabbath days are not going to be the ones that trip us up. Much more likely is that the fault lines of the culture around us, the issues of wealth and status and power and politics, will find their way inside the church and disrupt and divide. Uh, no doubt you voted yesterday. No doubt there are people here today who voted differently from you and feel different about the result. I love the Sunday after an election. I think it's one of the great days of Christian fellowship in, in, in all the year because this is a micro moment. There is something beautiful as it is radical about this moment that people with different political colours join together and with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ precisely because the God of hope has filled us with all joy and peace in believing. May we abound in that hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.